welcome to the Real Estate Raw Show, hosted by Joe Mendoza. Hi guys, Joe Mendoza here in sunny San Diego. Welcome to my show. Guys, today, ladies and gentlemen, we have an amazing person on the show. Matt Faircloth is the co-founder, president of the DeRosa Group. He's also an author. Guys, check this out. He has a great book, Raising Private Capital. So some of you folks are wondering this thing called OPM. What is it? Other people's money. Well, he wrote a book about it. He's used it to purchase lots and lots of properties. Welcome to the show, Matt Faircloth. Joe, thank you so much. Been an honor to, it's been an honor to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Matt, so take us back a little bit. Before real estate, to my audience who don't know you, what were you doing before that? Yeah. Uh, well, before I got involved in real estate, uh, and this was 15 years ago, I quit, I quit my day job to get involved in real estate 15 years ago. But before that, uh, I was a traveling sales rep and I, and I got my job there uh, because I had got my degree in engineering from Virginia Tech and, my, and, you know, and, and only because people when I was growing up told me, hey, you're good at math and science, so you should be an engineer. And so I said, yeah, you're right, I'll do that. So you know, listening to grownups at that age, so I went and uh, got my degree in engineering from college. About halfway through college, I realized, hey, I don't want to be an engineer. I don't want to do that. It doesn't seem like that, that suits my personality. So I found a job that required an engineering degree to sell technical products. That spoke to me as a salesperson, but not as a, not so much as a uh, yeah. It spoke to my sales muscle uh, that I had, my people person muscle, but also allowed me to utilize the degree that I had. So I did that for seven years. Did well reached the top 10 of a couple hundred sales reps. I was in the top 10 a few times. Um, and, and that's, I was happy, but, um, always was looking for more. My uh, girlfriend, uh, soon to be wife, uh, later in life, uh, got me to read rich dad, poor dad. And that turned my head to real estate investing from there. Nice. Very nice. Now tell us, um, the transition. So you were doing this other job and then yeah. I know you did some, um, single family flips, did some syndications, what have you. Well, how did that transition occur? Um, well, we did a lot of different. So when, when I was still, you're talking about when I was still working? Yeah. Okay. When or I was still working. Quit, did you quit cold turkey, jumped into real estate? Yeah, man. No, I quit. I, uh, we quit and we, we did this crazy thing that America seems to have gotten away from, which is called living below your means, you know? Um, we, we did that. And we also did this other thing you don't see very much of in this country, not like shaming America, but, but just, it's just tough to do this. We lived off of one income. Um, and so when I quit my job, we lived off of my wife's income. Now we had done a few real estate deals up until the time that I quit, but they were, they were minor deals. They weren't big, they weren't big projects. So, um, we had, um, you know, just kind of like dug deep and figured it out and, you know, and, and, and twisted and turned and found our way to, uh, found our way to where we are, but I, we continued to gravitate towards residential housing after I had quit and residential housing was where my passion was. I felt like it's where you can make the biggest impact. It's where I just seemed to gravitate. So over our years, we really expanded into being residential landlords, uh, residential landlords, residential housing providers through fix and flips and things like that. So that's been our core over the years of business. And your first few investments, when you started using OPM, how did you go about doing it? Was it friends and family or you read a book or got inspired? How did you come up with that idea? 
So it's funny. We kind of, I, I wish I could say though, I, I could point to a reference or a guru or whatever, or a mentor that taught me how to do it, but we figured it out. I mean, the, the way that we figured it out was my, my wife was talking to, um, she went to UP, University of Pennsylvania uh, for grad school. I, I married a smart girl, so it's a smart thing to do, right? So, uh, so I married up. She was talking to one of her alumni friends from UPenn and just talking about what she was up to. You know, this was years after graduation and, and we, we were years into business. And so she was like, oh, I'm doing this and doing that these days. And he was... Um, he was uh, just updating her what he was up to. And she mentioned, yeah, my husband's you know, running a real estate investment company. And this friend of hers said, oh, real estate. Geez, I wish I could invest in real estate too, but I just don't have the time. And that like triggered a, a, a bell in her head to say, you know, my husband has time, you know, and, and he, if this guy has money, they should talk. So she just said, you know, you should talk to my husband. And so we went up there, my wife and I went up there and had breakfast with this guy from, from, uh, from, he was a friend of hers from grad school. He was currently a stockbroker in Manhattan. And we just went up and had breakfast and talked shop and figured it out. And we just talked about, well, if I do this, what if you do that? And just kind of talked out our first private money deal. And I think that that's what I recommend quite a bit in the book, Raising Private Capital, is that you know, if, if you just have one-on-one -on -one conversations with potential private lenders, you can probably strike a win-win. And if you focus on win-win situations, you should be able to come up with something that works for both of you. Um, and I, 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 I preach that quite a bit in my business, that it's not about working with someone that's got set terms. It's about, well, this is what I want with my retirement portfolio. This is what I'm looking to see out of my, foral, out of my IRA account. Well, this is what I want. This is what I want to see for my cash. And then the deal provider saying, "Well, this is what I can do on the deal," and they can try and find something that works. That's how we did it. We just sat down and talked out the deal. Wow, that's awesome. So you yeah. were the private lender on some of his deals, basically. No, no, let's turn around. I was the. I was the. My book talks about two different people: the deal provider and the cash provider. Okay. So I have always been the deal. I have lent on a few deals, but but 99.99999% of the time, I have been the deal provider. I've been the one that goes out and finds the real estate opportunity that someone with cash invests in. This person's a stockbroker that did not have the time to invest in real estate, but I had the time. So he was able to put his money at work to in, at, to work in my business and and uh, and made a great return, and and I was able to expand. Fantastic. Fantastic. So it sounds like you've done a lot of multiple different deal structures because you're flexible. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the difference between like a, a JV versus a syndication to my audience that don't really know what either one is. Sure. Sure. Okay. So let me back. Do you mind if I, if I back up even further? Cause I, I think please, that I want to help you. I want to help your audience. Yeah. Yeah, um, you. There's three different, there's pretty much two different ways you can invest in real estate. Um, one is to provide debt. The other is to provide equity. Okay. So if an investor is providing debt, they are loaning money. That's Joe Mendoza calling up Matt Faircloth and saying, Matt, I'd like to borrow $100,000 to do this fix and flip deal. The hundred is going to cover part of the purchase price of the property and it's going to cover part of the construction. Are you in? And I say, great, I'll do it at this interest rate, whatever. Da, 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 da. So you and I work out a deal and I lend you that money. Okay. And I, and I put collateral on your property, a lien, which has to get paid off when the property sells or when it refinances or whatever. So 
that's how we strike that type of arrangement. It is a fixed, typical loans are typically a fixed rate loan um, with collateral, meaning something I can come and take if you don't meet the loan agreements, if you don't do, if you don't pay me back, there's something I can come and take from you, okay? So that is a loan. Equity is, and, and a loan in, in some ways is I am over here, you're over there. We're standing in two different positions. We're two separate entities. And equity is different. Equity is where I partner with you. This is you saying to me, hey, Matt, I have found this 10-unit apartment building. I'd love to partner with you on it. I'd like you to provide the money and I'll provide the sweat and do all the doing and all the work and all the you know, dealing with tenants and contractors and property managers and all that. And I'd like for you to provide the capital for the deal. And I say, sounds good. That dog will hunt. I'm in. Um, and so we arrange an equity structure and you and I then are not standing on two separate sides of the table. We're stepping, we're standing together. We're partners in a partnership, which is typically done through an LLC, right? Um, and so that, that's how you structure it. And you and I decide who's going to get what percentage ownership and who's going to get what compensation for the money they put in. And if you're going to get compensation for uh, the time and effort that you're putting in, or if I'm going to get a flat interest rate on my money plus equity, whatever, it's all negotiable. Um, those are the two different lanes that you can invest in real estate, period. Now, a joint venture is a mix of those two things. It is a little bit of a loan. So a investor, let's say I'm investing again with you, and it's just that same fix and flip. You say, Matt, I've got this great fix and flip. And again, these are not San Diego numbers, my friend, um, but I'll buy it for $100,000. I'm going to put another 100 into it in renovation, and I think I can sell it for 275 right? You wish you had those numbers in San Diego. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> right. That could be fixing up a car, like a garage or a doghouse for that kind of money, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, that's the deal. So there's 75000 in profit on the table, and I'm being super general here. So a joint venture could look like this. I'll say, you know what, Joe, I'll do that deal but I need to get 6% on my money, flat rate return. Either you pay me monthly, you pay me at the end, whatever. So I want you to pay me 6% as if I were a lender. And then I want 20% of your upside. I want 20% of your profit on your sale of your property, right? So then I'm kind of functioning like equity because I'm in for the upside of the, of the property. Uh, of the, I'm, I'm making a percent of the upside. The difference there is a joint venturer and you and I, I'm not in the company with you. I'm not an owner of the LLC. Just my loan agreements and my JV, my JV agreements say that I'm a title, entitled to some of your upside on your property. So a JV is just a hybrid of the two. Then there's the loan, then there's the equity. So I hope that lays it out for you. But those are the two and kind of like two and a half different ways you can invest in real estate with a JV being kind of a combination of the first two. Guys, he went through that really fast. Okay, so... A clue, get his book, okay? Yeah, I've had to explain this before, Joe. Just so you know, this is not my first time explaining debt and equity in JV, my friend. Not your first rodeo. No, no. Not All second. Right, so I can't. I forgot how many rodeos it's been, my friend. But I, but, I will glad, but I love explaining this kind of stuff because I think that it's an opportunity for a lot of people to learn how to either grow their real estate business or also expand their personal wealth through things that are outside of the stock market. Uh, through other ventures like like partnering up with business owners through these types of things. I totally agree, Matt. Now, somebody's listening to the show, somebody have, who hasn't read your book, they're getting curious, right? Hope Why so. should somebody use other people's money to invest? Well, okay. There's only but so much development you can do with your own, unless you're like, you're a lottery winner, lottery winner, you won the Powerball, God bless you, that you know, you want to, you got all the money you need ever in life. Um, you can build your business on your own capital. Great. You should do that. 
Um, but if your goals that you want are bigger than the capital you have at the time, you might want to consider getting into private loans or private equity or whatever to help you get where you want to go and strike some win-win arrangements with people to get you to your goals. That's why it's just, it just enables you to play a bigger game, private money does. And also, I don't forget the fact that, pri that borrowing private money, if you do the right thing with it, and if you're a good custodian with the money, helps other people reach their financial goals too. So there is a win-win there. These people aren't doing you a favor. They're not just helping you out, you know, they're, they're investing with you in the hopes for a great return. And, and hopefully you can deliver that with your business plan. And then they can, with that return you give them, they can get closer to their financial goals and retire on time or develop a college fund for their kids or whatever it is that they want to do for themselves. Private money benefits both sides of the equation. So that's why it's because it helps a lot of people. I totally agree with you, Matt. And thank you so much for pointing that out. Guys, just kind of uh, quick gloss, right? So at a bank, if you put your money for uh, into a savings account, you're probably getting not even 1%. No. Okay. How these deals typically structured? A lot more than that. Let's just say. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. High yeah. single digits, low double digits are, are, are frequently seen on, on returns on deals. So um, if you're, if you're making a half a percent, there's a whole big, there's a whole big world out there. And if your retirement account, your IRA is sitting there and it's in things you're not comfortable with or mutual funds or whatever, bear in mind, you can invest your retirement account in other things outside of Wall Street too. You can invest your retirement account into real estate as well, as long as it's an IRA, not a 401k, just an IRA can get invested in all kinds of other things outside of Wall Street. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Now, somebody's still kind of poking around looking at this. Should they go to legal Zoom or get an attorney and why? So if they're, it depends on who they are, right? So if this is the cash provider, the, the people that are looking to invest in the deal, um, they, a local family attorney is fine. I, I mean, um, I, I think that just someone to review the documents is good. Um, attorneys can tend to ring up a, a lot of fees and everything like that on these types of things. You got to be careful um, how much you have to do it. But really, the bottom line is making sure your deal provider had legal. Um, look over it. And like we have, we're running a syndication right now. We're putting together an apartment complex deal in North Carolina. And we paid an attorney quite a bit of money to put together the legal docs for that. Now, someone else's attorney can review that all they want. I mean, not, I can't let them make any changes to the documents because I got over 100 people signing these documents, right? So you're more than welcome to have an attorney review it. Or you can understand that my attorney that I paid a big check to created these documents uh, and then their license is on the line on those docs too. So it really depends on your deal provider on what they put into the legal docs that you're signing as well. And if you like and trust the attorney that they used as well, that's that probably determines how much legal due diligence you want to do on your side as a cash provider. Guys, that's a huge tip because like if you're doing a big syndication, I remember one of the deals I put together, you know, it was a $30,000 bill for that syndication. Now, some people, you know, you're trying to put this deal together. That's for starters. You yeah. haven't even looked at your due diligence, went through the inspection period. So that, that's a different, bigger game. Yeah. Um, what were some of the roadblocks, Matt, that you were faced with on your way up to scaling? Oh, um, hmm. In the very beginning, Joe, I'll, I'll talk to what folks that, that, are, that are on the small side and want to scale now. The biggest problem I have, which is what they're going to face too, is people taking you seriously. You know, um, you've done you've done a couple of singles, some doubles, some triples, and stuff like that. But you want to go and take down a 
50 unit or 100 unit apartment building, changing the way that you are investors and that the world views you is probably the biggest challenge. Like kind of breaking into that next level of real estate investing. Because there's, there's real estate investing down here that's like mom and pop kind of real estate investing. The, the one, two, three unit properties, maybe up to a 10 unit property. Um, and those folks can make a great living. But if you want to break into the next level and get really into private capital um, and, uh, and structure larger projects, then it, it, ta- it will, it, it, there, there is a taking seriously hurdle they're going to have to meet. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Is there a minimum um, cash on cash or cap rate you look for when you're looking at your personal investments or syndications? We're not a, we're not a cap rate evaluator. I know cap rates like the first thing that people want to talk about. Like, What's the cap rate on this project? You know, well, first of all, cap rate doesn't put any money in your pocket. Cap rate is simply an evaluator and it's a better, a cap rate and I, an internal rate of return are, are good ways to look at deals, but they're not, they should not be the end all be all. Um, as you said, the second factor for me is always cash on cash return. Um, we're structuring the deal I'm structuring in North Carolina has phenomenal cash on cash return um, very early in the game. And so I like that. And I think that as we potentially move into a recession or potentially move into changes in our economy, cash on cash return, I think, should be a more driving factor than IRR or than cap rate or whatever a deal is, because cash on cash early in the deal are really is what going to get is what gonna, is what's going to get you through a type of down a downswing or a dip in the market or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. So I think that those things are actually more important. Do you have a certain number you look for on, on, uh, on a deal um, yeah, and sure. also for your investors? Yeah, I like to see now th- this is the global deal. I like to see that in the first say year or two that we're in the double digits in cash on cash. I'm okay with a single digit cash on cash in year one. Cause I get that there's some restructure, but it needs to be in the high single digits, you know, seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Um, percent cash on cash. And then above, after year two, I like to see cash on cash global for the deal north of 10%, 11, 12, 13. And then as the deal starts to really come to fruition, it'd be great to get into the mid-teens, you know, um, and, and that. And then a lot of folks like to consider IRR, internal rate of return, because that factors in the money you're going to make on the sale of the property. But it's funny because if you're a Kiyosaki student, why are you selling? Why are you creating a tax event? You know, um, but IRR and, and, and the, our markets push towards the IRR on deals. Really, that's all people want to talk about is what's the IRR? Because it's factoring in like I want to buy it here, renovate it and then keep it for five years and then sell it. They'll, they want to see deals with with short life cycles. I'm not a life cycle, a quick life cycle investor. I may hold it long term investor. Uh, we have a 49 unit that we own in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it's reaching its five-year benchmark that, that, that the investors wanted to see on the deal. I'm going to refinance it and try and keep it as, as, and try and refinance it to buy as many of the investors out as possible and keep the asset because I'm not a sell person. I'm really more of a cash on cash. And if I can make more than 10% on my money, everybody's, you know, I'm happy and my investors are going to be happy too with what they get. Great. So when you run your pro formas and you present your private placement memorandums, to your potential investors, do you run it at like a seven, a 10? How far do you run it? Uh, years, you mean? Yes. We t- yeah, we, we'll run, we use a, uh, a software that lets you real quick change. Okay, what do you, it's like a drop down box in an Excel sheet. Like, I wanna sell it in year five, what's the return? I wanna sell it in year seven. I find the deals tend to, deals that I do with the cash on cash that I'm looking for, start making sense around year seven to year 10 on the out sale. So that's how we run it. Our, our year five stuff, 
uh, deals that you do with a five-year time horizon typically make sense where you're making most of your money on the sale, right? Because deals like that, the longer you wait till the sale, the longer, the lower the investor's IRR is going to be. So if you buy it, do some work and then flip it and you flip it in five years, that'll typically drive up your IRR if your, ca if your cash on cash is really low. And so you'll see people doing deals, dealing deals in A-plus markets like Dallas and Houston and, um, and uh, you know, Atlanta and Orlando and all the other A-plus markets you and I can spout off here, right? So those deals typically need to have a five-year sale so that they can get that cash injection from the sale back to investors to boost IRR. That's not us. Those aren't the deals we do. You're not going to see us in those markets. We're in more cash flow markets um, in markets that have very strong economies, not tertiary markets, but strong economies, but are not the, uh, the tier one, top tier, four and a half percent capitalization rate markets. You said a buzzword there for my audience. What's a tertiary market? Um, a tertiary market. So there's there are rankings of markets, right? So there's like in, a top tier market. That would be the ones that I just said, right? Then there are secondary markets. Those are markets, I'll name a few. Um, Philadelphia, Richmond, uh, Baltimore, um, Oklahoma City, areas like that. Again, and please don't you know, come and debate me and tell me Oklahoma City should be tertiary, should be here, should be there. I'm just giving basic examples of markets that have a little bit less population and a little bit less of, e of economic drivers, right? New York City is a top tier market right? Or it is for now. Let's see what happens after Corona crazy. But, uh, but, that, but New York City was, is a top tier market for now anyway. Um, then tertiary markets are markets that are a bit below there that have even lower populations. Sometimes markets like that actually depend on larger metropolitan areas for some spillover of economy. Um, I'll, uh, let's try and give you an example. It was uh, Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, used to have an, a, a sister city called Durham next door is you know half an hour away and then the people that don't know the area call it raleigh durham but really they're two cities it's raleigh and durham um there's you know, the twin cities and other parts of the of the country and whatnot too um but you get raleigh was the the economic hub and there was spillover that happened to durham durham was the tertiary market that was over here that got some you know they got the scraps that got the that got the pieces that fell on the floor and things like that from raleigh it has since grown to its own economic hub so it's no longer a tertiary market but tertiaries are just smaller and they tend to not have their own economic drivers and if they do they're smaller and they tend to have um spillover that happens from larger economic cities around them so thank you matt great explanation sure. so guys think about that like where if there's a major airport the properties are going to be more expensive. So just yeah, a yeah. little bit outside of that, you'll probably get a better return on your money, just a little bit outside of the major metropolitan, basically. So that's kind of what um, yeah. um, the way to look at it. So I'll give you the best example, Joe. If they got a major league baseball team, I'm probably not going to do the deal. If they've got a minor league baseball team, that's the city I like. That is your tier two city. If they don't have a team at all, I don't want it. Because... Yeah, because no team at all means it's probably so small of a city that they don't have enough population. There's not enough economy there. But if they've got, you know, like whatever the high one is, triple A, double A, whatever, if they've got towards the top on on uh, on on a on their minor league baseball team, you've probably got a big enough economy there that I would be interested. Not that that's our factor. It would that be great if that was just well, what's what's their team and who's their you know who are they a far, who are they a farm team for, right? If, they, if that were my only factor. Um, I love it, man. Yeah. No, that was a great example, guys. So yeah. 
keep that as a golden nugget right there. That Think about you that. Gotta, you got to look for those clues because some of these properties or deals might seem cheap or very, very inexpensive, but there is no minor league team there. You know, that's kind of a red flag. <laughs> you can go do your own homework, but I guarantee you that the base, the major league baseball commission did plenty of homework and probably spent a lot money than you're going, a lot more money than you're going to, to spend to determine if a market is strong or not. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, again, not that that's the only factor. Um, and, and that, but we, we, cause we do business in Lexington, Kentucky and Lexington does not have a baseball team, but they're going, they're getting one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so. Well, Matt, there's this is an interesting time in the market. Depending when you're listening to this, guys, there's a coronavirus, pandemic, what have you. Where do you see this market going? Because you talked about a couple transactions earlier, and you're still investing. Where do you think this market's going? The 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 national real estate market. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay, that's a great question, Joe. So first of all, I think that they're, they're really, it's hard to gauge the national market because what, what's going to determine there is factors that, defect, that affect everything nationally, right? So global interest rates, the global economy, things like that, right? Um, so interest rates, I think, are going to stay low. Um, I think we're going into a recession, and I think that's going to affect jobs. And I think that, that you're going to see job decrease in markets. So you're going to have to factor in higher vacancy rates and higher collections and things like that at some properties um, across the board. Now, let's, go, let's take it a step deeper. Real estate is very market specific, right? So what happens in Baltimore might not happen in Houston, okay? And so we need to also look at the economic drivers and where the economy is going to go in each, each. And I can't predict what's going to happen in each city across the country, but I think that we're definitely looking at a slowdown, not a crash that we may have a crash on wall street, but I don't think it's going to happen on main street. You know, I don't think it's going to happen on um, in the, in the real estate sector directly, because I'm not seeing the real estate market as overheated and propped up as it was in 2007 when I was investing then too. Um, so I think we're going to see certain markets do better than others, but I think that globally we're going to see a little bit of a slowdown on, um, on the economics. Perfect. Perfect. Matt, any other big tips why they should purchase your book and read it? Sure. Well, it's pretty affordable, you know, for 20, you know, I mean, you spend, people spend a lot more on 20, but people spend 20 bucks on a lot of other things in life versus like getting some, getting some great education. Um, and so it, it's, it's a good, it's a good value book. Uh, and there's a lot of great education in it. And if, you know, you do one deal off what you learned in my book, you're going to make your money a thousand fold, you know? Um, and so uh, it talks, the book talks about how to find money in your network, um, how to approach it, how to set it up. It is really a how-to with a lot of my personal story woven into it. Um, and it's, it's got a lot of, uh, it's got a lot of my heart and soul in it. And so I think that you'll get to know me personally and get to know the journey of a real estate investor that's been doing this thing for 15 years. So I think that it's also entertaining in some ways and it's enjoyable and it's also really a good how to on how to reach into your personal network and set up um, and set up a relationships with people that can help you take your business to the next level. Fantastic, Matt. Guys, it's on Amazon. Lots and lots of great reviews on there. It's yeah. on his website. So guys, if you're getting into this game, you know, there's only so many deals that your own dollars can do. And so OPM, other people's money is key because I'll tell you what, that last cycle that I went through, I ran out of money. I was like, oh my God, I'm seeing all these deals, but I can't buy them. And so yeah. think about that. 
I don't, I don't care if you have a million, two million dollars, you'll eventually run out if you're using your own money. But if you see those incredible deals and you're using other people's money, the sky's the limit, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good. Any last things you're working on you wanted to share with the group? Anything about the DeRosa group? Anything sure. like that? A few things. Uh, the book, which you've been, you've been very kind to mention, uh, they can get at that through DeRosaGroup.com. Uh, I recommend people get it through DeRosa Group or, for, or through Bigger Pockets. You can go to Amazon too, um, but Bigger Pockets and my website uh, give you guys a bunch of bonus material, which are of like 10, 10x value um, in that. So I recommend that. Uh, we have a phenomenal community called DeRosa Insiders that folks should consider joining. Again, they, they'll spend more than they spend on coffee each month on, than they do on DeRosa Insiders. Um, and they can get to that by going to derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com forward slash insiders. And what that is, it is a private Facebook group that gives folks direct access to me. We do live sessions. We do brain picking sessions. We're going to start doing face-to-faces when the world opens back up again. Um, and we do a lot of Facebook Live of our journey as a real estate investing company. The 336-unit property that we have um, under, uh, under contract and we're working on now uh, is highlighted deeply on, uh, on DeRosa Insiders. We talk about the underwrite. We show the underwriting on the deal. We show a lot of live sessions and videos and chats from the site. And we do a weekly update too on it to everybody. So if you guys really want to see the inside of a real estate company and how a real estate company functions inside and out, DeRosa Insiders is the place to go. You're man, Matt. Thank you so much for all this wisdom, encouragement, all your knowledge. This was incredible. Thank you so much for being on the show. Sure. Thank you, Joseph. It's been a real honor and a lot of fun. Our company is not responsible for the success or failure of your business decisions relating to any information presented by our company or our company programs, products, and or services. 